Due to the nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual assault and murder. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. According to former federal prosecutor Tad DeBias, more than 542 no-body homicide cases have found their way into a courtroom, roughly half within the last 20 years. Of those cases, about 86% ended in a conviction, which is actually higher than the amount of cases that are solved with a body as evidence. That might surprise you, but it's an important statistic to know. No body doesn't mean no crime, and it doesn't mean no hope. And sometimes, like in today's case, that hope can inspire a larger community of people looking for answers. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. For the next three episodes, I'm doing things a little differently. I teamed up with Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie from the podcast Solved Murders. Together, we're examining three no-body homicides. We'll be taking a closer look at these cases and helping debunk four words. No body, no crime. Carter and Wendy will take you through the beats of each case, and I'll share insights along the way. Today, we're unraveling the case of Kristen Smart, a college freshman who went missing after being escorted home from a party by two of her peers. She was last seen about a stone's throw away from her dorm. When investigators ran out of leads, the public searched for answers themselves. Thanks to the dedication of many people, Kristen's murderer is now behind bars. Carter and Wendy set the scene when we come back. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from 50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On May 27th, 1996, Denise Smart received a horrible phone call. It came from the campus police at Cal Poly University, where her daughter, Kristen, was enrolled as a freshman. Kristen had apparently gone to a party on Friday night and hadn't returned to her dorm room. She wasn't back the next morning or afternoon. She wasn't back Sunday either, which was when her friends contacted campus police. But the police didn't think Kristen being missing was a huge deal. 
They thought she must have gone out of town, which is why they then called Denise Smart, Kristen's mother, to ask if Kristen was home. Then Denise learned her daughter had been missing for almost three days. Which made the events of those three days and the stories of those who had seen Kristen absolutely crucial. So we'll start there with the days leading up to Kristen's disappearance. Three days earlier was May 24th, 1996. Around 5.30 p.m. that day, Kristen left her mom a voicemail. She'd done poorly on a biology test, but she had good news. Her professor was going to let her retake it. Later that evening, Kristen knocked on a friend's door. The friend's name was Margarita Campos, and she lived in the dorm next to Kristen's. Plenty of students had gone home for Memorial Day weekend, but the two of them decided to stay on campus. As soon as Margarita opened the door, she knew what Kristen was going to say. Let's go party. Margarita was more introverted than Kristen, and with finals approaching, she had exams to prepare for. But seeing Kristen in such a good mood, how could she say no? Around 8.30 p.m., Kristen, Margarita, and two other friends left their dorm rooms at Muir Hall. Once outside, they spotted another friend driving a pickup truck. Kristen climbed into the passenger seat while the other three hopped in the back. They spent the next few hours joyriding around San Luis Obispo, a pretty normal Friday evening for a few college students. But at some point, Kristen pitched a final destination. A frat party off campus. No one else was interested. Kristen's friends didn't love the idea of a testosterone-fueled kager, but if that's what Kristen wanted to do, they weren't going to stand in her way. The only problem was she had left her purse, money, ID, and keys back at the dorm. To save time, Margarita let Kristen borrow her keys. She could give them back tomorrow. Kristen's friends dropped her off a few blocks from the party, said their goodbyes, and Kristen headed towards the frat house. Kristen arrived at the party sober. She made her way through a crowd of 60-plus drunk students, mostly strangers, all vying for their turn at the keg. According to classmates, Kristen would sometimes act strange at parties, pretending to be drunk even when she hadn't had anything to drink. By some accounts, Kristen was seen drinking tequila, chugging vodka, and making out with a member of the basketball team. But by others, Kristen didn't have a drink at all. Reports of how Kristen behaved that night differ wildly. Witness statements are so hard. That's Sarah. She knows firsthand how conflicting statements can affect an investigation. Like, you want people to absolutely come forward with information, but these witness statements are notoriously unreliable. You have one person that saw one thing, and maybe somebody else was across the room and saw another. And at the end of the day, who do you believe? Well, there is, however, one detail from that night that isn't up for debate. During the party, several students heard a loud thud in the hallway. When they peeked around the corner, they saw Kristen on the ground beneath another freshman, Paul Flores, also known as Chester the Molester. Paul had earned the nickname thanks to the off-color remarks he routinely directed toward women on campus. Like Kristen, he'd been struggling with academics. With a 0.6 GPA, his future at Cal Poly was uncertain. But unlike Kristen, at least prior to this night, Paul had attracted the attention of both campus and local police. 
That December, he tried to enter a female student's room without her permission. The student called the San Luis Obispo Police Department and filed a report. Six weeks later, Paul got caught driving under the influence of alcohol, so it was a little alarming to see him standing over someone at a party, especially a female. But witnesses weren't sure whether Paul had knocked Kristen over on purpose or if the sight of him standing over her was something to worry about. Afterwards, they dusted themselves off and headed in opposite directions. Around 2 a.m., a senior named Tim Davis found Kristen outside, asleep on the neighbor's lawn. Tim offered to walk Kristen back to her dorm room. It was only a 10-minute stroll, and another student, Cheryl Anderson, needed an escort back, too. The trio wound their way up the well-lit street towards campus when they heard a voice yelling for them to wait up. It was Paul Flores again. Paul told Tim he could take the two young women home. He was headed in the direction of the dorms anyway. So Tim said goodnight to Cheryl and Kristen and turned back towards the frat house. Minutes later, Paul, Kristen, and Cheryl reached the path to Cheryl's dorm. Before separating, Paul tried to give Cheryl a kiss. Cheryl politely declined and left. Paul shrugged it off and latched his arm around Kristen's waist. He started carrying Kristen back towards Muir Hall. The dorm was only 40 yards away. What could go wrong? Coming up. I do want to say, the second your person, someone you love, anybody you know, is not where they're supposed to be, go report them missing. A missing student, a black eye, and an earring that could be a clue. For hundreds of years, we have looked to scientists to explain how the world around us works. But what happens when science doesn't have the answer? Every week on the podcast Unexplained Mysteries, we take a deep dive into paranormal activities, natural phenomena, and suspicious deaths to try to grasp how and why mysterious events occur. Some things need no explanation. Others are a complete mystery. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Unexplained Mysteries. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. Kristen's friend, Margarita Campos, was maybe the first person to notice her absence. On the morning of May 25th, 1996, she was expecting Kristen to drop off the keys she'd borrowed the day before. As the day dragged on, Margarita started asking around. Kristen's roommate, Crystal, didn't know where Kristen was. Crystal had spent the night elsewhere. When she came home, Kristen wasn't in her bed. Kristen's wallet, purse, and keys were right where she'd left them the day before. In fact, Kristen's entire side of the room looked completely untouched. Saturday came and went with no sign of Kristen. By Sunday, her friends had spoken to campus police. But according to Margarita Campos, the officials didn't act with any sense of urgency. They suggested that maybe Kristen just left campus for a few days. But after continued pressure from Kristen's classmates, campus police called Kristen's parents on Monday. They confirmed that Kristen wasn't at home. Before pivoting to a new theory... Maybe Kristen ran away. After all, she was struggling in school, right? Denise knew better. Her daughter wouldn't have left everything she needed behind. It didn't make sense. Kristen was missing and needed help. 
It's so important to listen to your gut in these situations. No one is gonna know the missing person better than their loved ones. What may not seem out of the ordinary to law enforcement could be completely out of the ordinary to a family member. You know these people better than anyone. So after speaking with campus police, the smarts felt like their daughter's case was being treated like another stolen bicycle. So they escalated the situation and contacted the San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Department. But there they were met with another frustrating obstacle. The sheriff's office claimed it was too early to file a missing persons report. Which is not unheard of in these types of cases. Pursuing a missing persons report is notoriously difficult. People will tell you you need to wait 24 hours, you need to wait 48 hours, they need to meet certain criteria. And let's talk about the 48-hour myth. The myth that you have to wait 48 hours before you can report your person missing. And every department's a little bit different, but I do want to say the second your person, someone you love, anybody you know, is not where they're supposed to be, go report them missing. And if they want to tell you that they have a policy about 48 hours, ask for that in writing. Ask to see the policy. Ask to speak to a supervisor to voice your concerns. It may sound dramatic, but these hours are so crucial. You have to fight for that report. It took several days of pressure from family and friends to get police to investigate Kristen's disappearance. And when they did, they didn't seem to focus on potential suspects. Instead, they placed Kristen's life at Cal Poly under a microscope. A week after her disappearance, police published a field report. It mentioned that Kristen was seen socializing with several males at the party and said she didn't conform to, quote, typical teenage behavior and implied that she didn't have many close friends at school. The final line read, quote, These observations are in no way implying that her behavior caused her disappearance. But even still, some felt the report was placing the blame on Kristen. And those feelings were made worse when police waited another six full days to interview the last person to see Kristen alive, Paul Flores. When Paul arrived to speak to police, he had a shiner under his right eye. He claimed he got hit playing basketball the Monday after Kristen disappeared. Except a friend of Paul's said he saw the injury on Sunday, a day earlier. Police wondered why Paul was lying. Had there been a scuffle, perhaps between him and Kristen the night she vanished? Paul told investigators he and Kristen didn't spend much time together that night. He claimed they separated shortly after leaving Cheryl. He watched Kristen walk up the path towards her dorm alone before he headed to his own room. Paul's roommate was away for Memorial Day weekend, so no one could really corroborate this story. But when Paul's roommate did return to campus, he told police about a bizarre comment Paul made. The roommate made an offhanded joke about what Paul might have done with Kristen, and Paul apparently responded with, She's home with my parents. Investigators asked Paul to take a lie detector test. He said sure, but he kept dodging the appointments. Eventually, the district attorney cornered him and brought him to a nearby station. He changed his story about how the black eye happened. He said he got hit in the face while working on his dad's truck. But it wasn't the lies or the polygraph that started giving Paul away. It was his body language. During that 90-minute session, Paul pulled his arms into his t-shirt and began scrunching himself into a ball in his chair. 
Investigators felt like he was about to cave when Paul served them the unthinkable. He said, if you're so smart, then tell me where the body is. Police didn't have an answer, but at some point they remembered that comment he made to his roommate. She's home with my parents. Only to learn there'd been some suspicious activity at Paul's mother's home in the days after Kristen disappeared. Susan Flores lived in Arroyo Grande, uh, about a 20-minute drive from Cal Poly. The week Kristen vanished, neighbors reportedly saw the family dig planter boxes out of their backyard. Days later, they were filled in with concrete slabs. And Paul once asked investigators if he could leave an interview early because he needed to go help with yard work. Investigators went to the home and performed a radar scan of the backyard. The detectors registered an anomalous reading around the poured concrete. But for reasons we may never understand, they didn't get a warrant to follow up. It's also important to note, Paul's parents were separated at the time. Paul mostly lived with his father, Reuben, and Reuben was the one who'd been driving him around since his license was revoked after the DUI. Yet police never secured a search warrant to investigate Reuben's home or to take a closer look at the family's two trucks. Strangely, one of those cars was reported stolen shortly after Paul was brought in for questioning. The other was traded in. Then there was the earring. In October 1996, about six months after Kristen's disappearance, Susan Flores rented out her property to a woman named Mary Lassiter and her family. One afternoon, Mary was washing her car in the driveway when she spotted a unique-looking earring on the ground. She'd seen a piece of jewelry like it before. It looked eerily similar to the necklace Kristen Smart was wearing and all the missing persons posters hung around town. Mary turned over the earring to the San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Department. But for reasons that are unclear, Kristen's family didn't hear about the earring the piece of evidence that could put their daughter's killer behind bars until January 1997, six months later, when Mary was brought in for questioning. And when Kristen's parents demanded to see the earring for themselves, the sheriff's department told them it had been misplaced. And they'd forgotten to tell the parents. Let's be real. Humans make mistakes, even people in law enforcement. As unfortunate as it is, something like misplacing or losing evidence does happen. But I do think that there's a line between an honest mistake and an unacceptable one. What's within their power is notifying the parents of what's going on, telling her parents what happened. Missing this earring, missing this crucial piece of evidence is vital. Without the earring, police didn't feel like they had enough to arrest Paul, let alone get a conviction. Before the Smarts knew it, it was May 25th, 1997, the one-year anniversary of her disappearance. They were still putting up billboards of her smiling face and offering a $75,000 cash reward to anyone with information. Around this time, the sheriff of San Luis Obispo made a disconcerting statement. He told the public, quote, We need Paul Flores to tell us what happened to Kristen Smart. The fact of the matter is we have very qualified detectives who have conducted well over 100 interviews and everything leads to Mr. Flores. There are no other suspects. So absent something from Mr. Flores, I don't see us completing this case. 
It was awkwardly phrased, but the message itself was clear as day. As long as Paul Flores stayed quiet, and as long as Kristen's body wasn't found, Paul would get away with his crimes. Fourteen months after Kristen's disappearance, the district attorney tried once more to get Paul to confess. He offered Paul a deal. Only six years behind bars if he admitted to his crimes and led the police to Kristen's body. Paul shot it down. Luckily, for the Smart family, there was one podcaster and 450,000 listeners who wouldn't let Paul Flores walk free. Coming up... I mean, I can't think of a better example of someone being driven by passion and just driven by empathy. Kristen's case catches a break. Now, back to the story. A year after Kristen Smart's disappearance... Investigators were still focused on the same suspect, Paul Flores. But without hard evidence and without a body, the only thing that could put Paul behind bars in their eyes was a confession. Search parties had scoured San Luis Obispo and the surrounding areas for Kristen's remains. Everywhere from the Cal Poly hillsides to local landfills had been picked through, and still no sign of the 19-year-old Cal Poly freshman. Six years after she disappeared in 2002, Kristen Smart's parents had her legally declared dead. So I just want to say, in declaring someone legally dead, there are a lot of emotions that go along with that. It's a really hard thing to grapple with. It was something that was really hard for me to grapple with when I was trying to make that decision for my sister. By declaring someone legally dead, you're basically saying to the courts, to the world, and more personally to yourself, that your missing loved one is dead, that they're gone and they're not coming back. But there are upsides to this. I mean, there's a reason people do it, right? This way, they'd be able to file a civil suit against Paul Flores for the emotional distress he'd caused a family over Kristen's disappearance. You can bring forth a wrongful death suit, and in those types of civil suits, more information can come to light that can actually help you prosecute the case later on. You can also do things like a civil suit for emotional distress, just like we're seeing in this case. But either way, it's a really difficult thing to go through that I wouldn't wish upon my worst enemy. Meanwhile, Paul Flores continued his life. He dropped out of Cal Poly the summer Kristen disappeared and had since moved to Southern California, where he was hopping from job to job, making ends meet. For over two decades, hundreds of commuters passed by a billboard with Kristen's face. This included a young boy from Orchid, California, just 23 miles away, a boy who'd eventually grow up and risk everything to answer that question. Chris Lambert was eight when he first saw the image of Kristen on his family drives. For years, he wanted to know more about the girl in the photo, the life she could have had, the person she would have become. If it could happen to her, it could happen to anyone. He wanted to know why more people weren't invested in finding the answer. He wanted to get people talking about Kristen Smart again. In 2018, Chris quit his job at a recording studio and put everything he had into solving the mystery of Kristen's case. He wanted to know who had dropped the ball, why Paul Flores was walking free, and if all these years later, anyone would be willing to come forward with answers. So Chris made a podcast. It was called Your Own Backyard. 
Now, I have to give a huge shout out, another shout out to Chris and the Your Own Backyard podcast. I know I would have felt extremely fortunate to have worked with Chris on my sister's case. You have someone who is extremely empathetic and followed through till the very end. In the podcast, he explained how personal Kristen's disappearance felt to him as someone who'd grown up in what he believed was another safe, small California town. He began by reviewing the facts of the case. Then he conducted interviews with locals and people who'd known Kristen. After a few episodes aired, he had the cooperation of the San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Department. With a new sheriff on the force, they were willing to reopen the case and offer Chris details that had never gone public. And the relationship worked both ways. Whenever Chris received a new lead, he handed it over to the department, who would take the tip seriously. It didn't take long for the podcast to receive national attention. More importantly, it put Paul Flores back under a microscope. After hearing the story, several women came forward. They said they not only knew 40-year-old Paul Flores, he'd crossed a line with them. Colleagues claimed he'd made unwanted sexual advances. An ex-girlfriend said he'd physically and verbally abused her. While he was never charged for any of these offenses, come February 2020, things escalated quickly. On February 4th, police received a search warrant to raid Paul's home in San Pedro. They seized several videos Paul had recorded of himself sexually assaulting at least 10 different women. The following day, police searched his father, Ruben Flores's home. The same home police failed to search back in the summer of 1996 when Paul was living there. It's not clear what, if anything, they found, but a few days later, a witness told Chris Lambert that on the night of February 9th, 2020, three days after this police raid, three people were spotted whispering under Ruben Flores' deck late at night. The witness was pretty confident that the three individuals were Ruben Flores, his ex-wife Susan, and Susan's boyfriend at the time. It took police about a year to secure another search warrant and return to Ruben's house. But on March 15th, 2021, they came armed with a team of detectives, forensic investigators, cadaver dogs, and radar scanners. They discovered a small gravesite under the deck. Radar scanners detected soil that had been recently moved, and the samples they collected contained human blood and fibers. Even more damning, they found a body-shaped stain inside Ruben's utility trailer. This evidence is huge. I mean, on one hand, it does fill you with dread, right? You never really want the answers to point to your missing person being gone. But on the other hand, in a no-body homicide, evidence like this can make or break the case. You have human blood, you have fibers, you have this body-shaped stain. I mean, this is some really strong evidence. They couldn't concretely link Kristen's DNA to the blood in the soil sample, but police were confident. Reuben and Paul had buried and exhumed her body more than once. The first time was presumably at Susan's home beneath those planter boxes back in 1996. With that, police felt they finally had enough evidence to arrest the now 44-year-old Paul for murder and his 80-year-old father Reuben for accessory to murder. By April 2021, both were pleading not guilty, but behind bars. Now, I know it seems like this huge victory, but I can say that getting to the trial process is a mixed bag of emotions. 
on one hand, yeah, it's a huge victory. But on the other hand, it's like you're finally starting the last battle in a really long war. Basically, it all comes down to this. It all comes down to the trial. On July 18th, 2022, a joint trial commenced. Because the authorities had to gather so much evidence to prosecute a no-body homicide, the trial lasted for months. In September of 2022, an old acquaintance of Paul's named Jennifer Hudson took the stand. Her testimony was likely the final nail in Paul Flores's coffin. She claimed that back in 1996, she was skateboarding at a friend's house with Paul when a public service announcement came on the radio. It was asking for details about Kristen Smart's case. Apparently, that's when Paul confessed something to Jennifer. He was at a party with Kristen the night she disappeared. And after he was done, quote, playing with her, he put her, quote, under his place in Huasna, referring to a skate park about 20 minutes east of Arroyo Grande. Jennifer could tell Paul was being serious. In fact, it scared her so much she was terrified to report it. It wasn't until she heard Chris Lambert's podcast and even talked to Lambert directly that she finally spoke to the police. It wasn't much, but Jennifer's statement seemed like the closest thing to a confession they were going to get from Paul Flores. In October 2022, the respective juries deliberated on Paul and Ruben's cases. They found Paul's father, Ruben, not guilty of the charges. But even with Kristen's body still missing, the jury found Paul Flores guilty of killing Kristen Smart. On March 10th, 2023, Paul Flores was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Kristen's case is the perfect example of the power of podcasting. Because when you come together with great content and people actually listen, when people actually share these cases, this is exactly what can happen. While Kristen's family can rest easier knowing her killer is behind bars, a lot of unanswered questions remain. Questions like, what happened in those 40 yards between Kristen's dormitory and the last time she and Paul were seen? How did Paul get Kristen off campus and with whose help? And of course, where is Kristen's final resting place? Denise Smart has said that she learned a lot from losing her daughter. It's taught her that there's a lot more good people in the world than bad. I can tell you that when I was fighting for my sister, it was the good people that kept me inspired. The people like Chris Lambert at your own backyard. And I don't want to discount the role that the listener plays, the role that you listening right now play in these cases. It takes all of us. It takes a community to move these cases forward. Because I've said it before and I'll say it again. Media pressure moves mountains. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. 
You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances is a Spotify original from ParCast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Ali Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Lori Marinelli, edited by Maggie Admire and Connor Sampson, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Aaron Larson and Joshua Kern, with sound design by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.